Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello everyone and welcome to the History of England, episode 141c. The Romans in Britain by Richard Norton. As for last week, although it's David's voice you can hear, this is in fact Richard Norton speaking. And here's the second part. Hadrian's Wall The single most iconic, lasting image of the Romans in Britain is probably Hadrian's Wall. As someone who lives in the north of England, Hadrian's Wall is a particularly well-known landmark. Not too far from where I live is a place called Wall's End, which, as the name suggests, is where the wall ended at the east coast. Hadrian is probably my favourite emperor, the third of the five good emperors, the rock supergroup of imperial rulers who passed power onto capable men and reigned over what is generally considered the height of Roman power. To list all of Hadrian's achievements would take a very long time, but he was a successful general and politician, an expert in architecture and philosophy, a brilliant statesman, who successfully micromanaged a huge empire and coordinated his succession so he not only picked his immediate successor, but the next one as well. And while some emperors were content to rule from their palace in Rome, Hadrian toured his empire, seemingly always on the move. He was also an unconventional emperor, one of the few Roman leaders to seemingly ignore military glory and dreams of expansion. In fact, one of the first things he did as emperor was to withdraw from the territory his predecessor had recently occupied in the east, believing it would be too hard to hold. He's sometimes described as a pacifist emperor, but when the time called for it, he waged brutal and successful wars against Rome's enemies. Hadrian seemed to be creating a stable, defensible empire, something that could endure. So, it must be remembered that the wall didn't represent the absolute edge of the empire, but was a position of which soldiers could be based and project northwards. Indeed, Hadrian's successor, Antoninus Pius, built another wall, the Antonine Wall, still further north, although that position was soon abandoned. The wall was 84 miles long, and in places was 20 feet high and 10 feet wide, with a fortified gate at every mile and additional forts and other defensive structures. It seems that the soldiers didn't walk along the wall as such, but would place themselves in forts and towers. Indeed, due to the lack of arrows and other projectile weapons found at the wall, it seems likely that the Romans still preferred to meet their enemy in a more straightforward battle, rather than fight from a protected position. 
The sheer number of gates in the wall suggests that there was a lot of movement through the wall, and as well as a defensive structure, it's a safe assumption that it was used to control the existing Roman territory, controlling who passed through, exacting fees, and really showing the Britons who controlled the island. As impressive as the wall was, clearly it was never meant to be their principal defence against the British tribes. It wasn't an insurmountable obstacle. No, the Romans trusted more in their legions. Hadrian's wall fits into the image of an emperor who was intelligent, ambitious and unconventional, but liked to show what Rome could do. This was a wall built across a narrow point of the British Isles to control territory, project Roman power and protect Roman Britain from the barbarians to the north. The Romans frequently campaigned north of the wall and in a pitched battle always routed the poorly organised barbarians but they failed to solidify and consolidate the gains they made and they never conquered the whole of the island of Britain. I like to think that not only was the wall a practical defensive measure but also demonstrated to the barbarians that this was what Rome was capable of. Thousands of miles away from their homeland but able to build a gigantic wall that bisected the island, and then charged the Britons for the pleasure of passing through what had once been theirs. For virtually all Britons, this small island was their whole world, and Rome cut it in two. Hadrian came to Britain in 122 AD, and perhaps due to trouble with the native inhabitants, both in Roman-held territory and beyond, decided to build his wall. He gave the order to build the wall that same year, but quickly headed off to Spain, perhaps to see what walls he could build there. So why didn't the Romans take the whole island of Britain? The Romans, after all, typically did not do things by half, and the entirety of modern Scotland lay beyond their empire. As I said, the Romans regularly campaigned beyond the wall and reached the far north of Scotland, but would always ultimately choose not to try and hold on to it. While anyone might think it's entirely sensible not to waste valuable resources to conquer territory you don't need or want, that wasn't usually how Rome saw things. There was a huge outcry when Hadrian abandoned his predecessor's conquests in the east because he didn't think the empire could hold them. The idea of whether it made strategic or political sense was irrelevant. The glory and prestige of Rome were seen as far more valuable. Seventy years later, the Emperor Severus, worried his sons were turning into wayward hedonists, which they were, dragged them along on his campaign into Scotland to try and toughen them up and make them into better men. He failed miserably in that task, but he was successful in defeating the northern Britons. I don't believe that it was that the Romans couldn't conquer the whole island. The Britons who lived north of Hadrian's Wall can't have been such a terrifying group of people. Also, the idea that Scotland was too unappealing, cold, wet, etc., is not convincing. The Romans had poured vast amount of resources into conquering all sorts of places. A lot is said of stretched supply lines, but again I don't think this would necessarily stop them. I think that it was maybe that there was never the political will to press onward in that direction. The two most important men involved in the conquest of Britannia were Julius Caesar and Claudius, who both did it for political reasons. Caesar to continually show his brilliance and daring and Claudius to show he might be a half-decent emperor. A brief look at the future Roman emperors perhaps explains why the idea of conquering the whole island never really took off. Claudius's direct successor Nero was incompetent and had to deal with Boudicca's rebellion, 
and then followed the year of the four emperors, a period of intense civil war. The eventual winner, Vespasian, had to consolidate his rule and deal with a huge rebellion in Judea. And then his son, Titus, reigned for too short a time. His brother Domitian had a similar defensive posture to Hadrian, and eventually he was assassinated. Then came the five good emperors, who were capable and secure enough in their rule to perhaps finish the conquest. But Trajan was too busy, repeating Alexander the Great's conquests in Persia, Hadrian had a war to build and was too astute to wage war just for glory. Antoninus Pius was the great maintainer and Marcus Aurelius had his hands full fighting the Germans. After that, the empire had too many problems to really consider such an adventure. As the empire really got into trouble, legions would be siphoned away from the island to more important areas or usurping generals would use those legions to make themselves emperor. The idea of expanding was far from any emperor's mind. What did the Romans ever do for us, and what did the Britons ever do for Rome? With Boudicca's defeat came a more secure province. The rebellion had consolidated opposition to Rome, and once it was defeated, Roman rule was only stronger. This seems like a good point to discuss what benefits the Britons got from the Romans, and what the Romans got from Britannia. Everywhere the Romans conquered, they left their mark. They built cities, monuments, fortifications. They imposed their way of doing things. And for the most part, their way of doing things was more efficient than the old ways. In a sense, the Romans did bring civilization, or at least their idea of civilization, to Britannia. While Britannia had been part of a larger European community before the invasion, as a province they were part of an extensive network that stretched all the way to the Middle East. Britannia had been a tribal society, with many small kingdoms, and now it was made into a Roman province. It had legions, villas, tax collectors. A Romanized aristocracy emerged, by which I mean the important native Britons adopted Roman culture, acting in the Roman way. This was another successful feature of the Roman Empire. By Romanizing a province, or at least its leaders, they reduced rebellion against that government. It was as much their empire as anyone else's the general population often would never become fully Romanized. The Romans also brought a measure of security. Britannia was now part of arguably the greatest military machine ever created, and anyone who had a problem with Britain had a problem with Rome. The empire protected the Britons from their enemies. You might well ask, which enemies? And certainly one answer could be, well, Rome. But there were also the barbarians to the north, and as the centuries passed... North German barbarian invaders, the Angles and Saxons, who would take over once the Romans left. They became so used to the protection of legions that in the dying days of the empire, the notable figures of the island wrote to Emperor Honorius, begging for help, as they were now practically defenceless. The emperor responded that they'd have to look after themselves. The legions had been withdrawn, and instead of seizing the chance to be free and independent, they wrote to their ruler, reminding him there was no longer anyone there to tell them what to do. I expect the response to Honorius' letter was a loud, collected tut, and people saying, typical, which is how British usually react when they're let down. So, if the Romans brought the Britons civilization and security, what did the Romans get from Britannia? Well, not much, it seems. The original conquest and rebellions would provide for lots of slaves and some plunder, 
and there were some natural resources to be stripped from the island, but there seems to be few tangible benefits. In my opinion, what Rome got from this conquest was prestige. Britannia was at the edge of the known world, a wild land of barbarians. Rome conquered it, and would hold it just to show how strong it was. The empire rarely gave up territory and certainly would fight tooth and nail to keep it, just to show how strong and invincible they were. When he died, the Emperor Augustus had implored his successors not to try and conquer new territory, as he felt the empire was as large as it could be. Virtually all of them ignored this, the glory outweighing any practical considerations. The Crisis of the 3rd Century The Roman world ground on, Hadrian's Wall was built and Rome seemed as impervious as ever, but this was an illusion. Edward Gibbon, the distinguished historian and author of The Rise and Fall of the Roman Empire, said to the effect that one of the best times and places to be alive would have been a Roman citizen in the 2nd century AD, and this would have corresponded with the reign of the five good emperors. But it seems that the 3rd century had no interest in competing with the 2nd century and decided to head in an opposite direction. The Roman world was plunged into absolute chaos. Men were raised to the status of emperor only to be killed months later. Legions rose in revolt. Barbarians ran unopposed across the empire. The empire came close to utter collapse. This was the crisis of the 3rd century. So grave was this crisis that at one point the Roman Empire split into different sections. The crisis had numerous causes, a succession of generals rising up against weak emperors, dragging legions from the frontier to fight their civil wars, barbarian armies becoming larger and invading the empire across the now poorly defended frontier, the Cyprian plague devastated the population and the Parthian Empire had reformed into the Sassanid Empire, a far more powerful state, than Parthia, which posed a greater external threat to Rome. Due to the unwillingness or inability of Rome's central authority to deal with the barbarian invasions that were ravaging Gaul, an enterprising general named Posthumus succeeded from the empire, taking Gaul, Hispania and Britannia with him. And so the Gallic Empire was born, lasting from 260 to 274 AD. Meanwhile, on the other side of the empire, the Parthians had soundly defeated the empire, capturing the emperor Valerian and doing what they pleased in Roman territory. In desperation, a Palmyran military genius, Odonothus, was given sweeping powers to deal with the Parthians, and amazingly he was successful and restored order to the east. Unfortunately, with Odonothus' death, his wife orchestrated her own revolt against the Roman rule, taking the eastern provinces with her and her revolt lasted from 260 to 273 AD. It was a bad time for the empire. The Gallic Empire didn't last long. The brilliant emperor Aurelian brought it back into the fold, and he also dealt with the barbarians invading Italy and the revolt from Palmyra and various other problems, reuniting the entire empire and restoring order. If there was one emperor to have on your side in a fight, I'd pick Aurelian, even over Julius Caesar. He was a man who got things done. Aurelian and the other Barak emperors who followed brought stability back to the empire. They were tough, soldier emperors, often from Illyria, i.e. roughly the equivalent of the modern Balkans. 
These Illyrian emperors culminated in the Emperor Diocletian, a visionary emperor who did so much to ensure the empire's survival. There's virtually no aspect of the empire that he didn't tinker with, and while not everything was successful, his achievements are staggering. Diocletian realised something that had been apparent for some time. The empire was too big for one man to rule. The Gallic Empire had been born because the emperor's attention was elsewhere, on problems thousands of miles away. While he was perhaps not the first to realise this, Diocletian deserves enormous credit for what he did next in deciding to carve the empire up, originally into two and then four. It would remain a single empire, but there would be four men ruling it, each with their own areas to watch over. Admittedly, Diocletian was always recognised as the man ultimately in charge, but finding men capable of doing the job and loyal enough not to take advantage must have been very difficult. The first split was east and west, Diocletian taking the east and his friend Maximian taking the west. And it was when Maximian was in charge of the west that the island of Britannia first left the Roman Empire, albeit only briefly. The focus of Roman administration was usually geared towards ensuring the strength of the army, but when the opportunity arose, they were also clever at making a quick buck. A particularly enterprising military commander of Britannia named Carusius had worked out a clever way of making some money. Pirate raids by the Germans would always be a problem for an island nation, but Carusius saw this not as a crisis, but an opportunity. So Carusius was content to sit back let the pirates do their work, and only then swoop in for the attack and keep the wealth the pirates had stolen. Now Maximian was a die-hard soldier, and while the Romans were willing to overlook all manner of bad behaviour, this was just too much. Maximian's attempts to remove Carusius only resulted in the commander breaking Britannia and parts of Gaul away from the empire. Once again, part of the empire had broken away. It was 286 AD, only a few years had passed since Aurelian brought the empire back together. But these were different times, and the empire was not as overloaded with problems as before. Now Carusius had Maximian's full attention. Unfortunately for Rome, Maximian's full attention wasn't that useful, and his campaign to retake the island ended in disaster perhaps down to poor weather, something which often troubled the Romans when crossing the channel, or down to the mistakes of Maximian, or perhaps both. But whatever the reason, Carusius was able to sleep more soundly, having repulsed the invasion. And then, in what was a recurring motif in rebelling Romans, Carusius was assassinated and replaced by someone far less capable. The second Roman invasion was a few years off as the Romans needed to build a new fleet, and the man brought in to handle the situation had his own plans. This man was Constantius. He and another man, Galerius, had each been brought in as subordinates to Diocletian and Maximian, and Constantius's first job was to retake Britannia. In a sensible move, Constantius first moved against Carusius's allies in Gaul, and their defeat was what sparked Carusius's assassination. Constantius raised two inflation fleets, each landing at different points, and quickly came to victory. The finance minister who had replaced Carusius was easily defeated, but the Frankish mercenaries that had been in his employ now marauded across Britannia, plundering what they could. But it wasn't long before they'd been defeated too, and Britannia 
was back in the empire. The island was an unlikely home of many rebellious Roman generals, and I can only imagine the Britons wished that the commanders sent to their homeland were a little less ambitious and a little more focused on protecting Britannia. At least with the Gallic Empire, its raison d'etre had been the better defence of their lands. Men like Carusius just brought trouble. These commanders, incidentally, were not Britons. They were commanders from across the empire who happened to be based in Britannia. Something the Romans often did was to try to separate commanders and their legions from their homelands. So, for example, a commander born in Syria might be moved to Gaul, away from any potential power base or conflicting loyalties. As the empire came on, it became harder to maintain this rule. Julian the Apostate, the emperor who tried to reverse the Christianization of the empire, had once promised his own Gallic legions that they would never be forced to fight on the other side of the empire. And when Julian's uncle had given them this order, it led to their revolt and Julian's elevation to the emperor. When generals started a rebellion seeking the throne, typically they'd move towards Rome, or in the later empire, Milan, Trier, Ravenna, or one of the other cities that were used as capitals, as Rome itself lost prominence. And of course, they took their legions with them. Even if a usurper was successful, it didn't mean any benefits for the province where his rebellion had started now they were emperor, they had other, far more important things to deal with. The ease with which new emperors were made and unmade was a continuing problem for the empire. Successful generals would often be hailed as imperator by their troops, sometimes spontaneously, sometimes in carefully managed stage productions. Being hailed as imperator was their acclamation that their general was the emperor, and few generals turned down their offer. Diocletian specifically tried to address this problem in a number of ways, and he tried to bring in what would later be called divine right. The idea that the emperor was favoured, even chosen, by the gods. When Augustus achieved supreme power in Rome, he took the title princeps, meaning first citizen. So he was first amongst equals, aware that he was just a successful man. Over time, this way of being viewed would give way to a more elaborate position, full of ritual and religious meaning. It was understandable that an ambitious general could think himself a better ruler than the princeps and seek to replace him. But if the emperor was chosen by the gods, that might make him think twice. The fact that the problem of usurping generals only got worse implies this process was not altogether successful. I shall say a little bit more about Diocletian and the Tetrarchy, as his system of four emperors was known, as Britannia was the effective beginning of a man who became one of the most important and influential in the history of the world. Diocletian did something no other emperor had done. He retired of his own free will and compelled Maximian to do the same. The idea seemed to be that the senior emperors would step down, their subordinate emperors be promoted and two new men chosen to fill their positions in turn. It seems Diocletian was trying to create a smooth transfer of power, something to replace usurping generals in civil war. It's possible he also tried to make a feature of this system the intentional snubbing of children of existing emperors. Maximian and Constantius each had capable popular sons who were expected to take power, but were passed over for other men. Neither of them took this lying down. 
Maximian's son Maxentius rebelled, taking control of Rome and Italy. Constantius's son Constantine rebelled as well. When Constantius died in York, his son was hailed as Imperator. Eventually, it was worked out that Constantine would take a position of subordinate emperor in the West, but Maxentius was officially given nothing. The years that followed were full of fierce civil wars that eventually saw Constantine emerge as the sole emperor. Constantine is known to history as Constantine the Great, one of the last rulers of a unified Roman Empire, founder of Constantinople, modern Istanbul, and the first Christian emperor. There is a great deal of debate of how Christian Constantine actually was, and it seems very clear that he was a very pagan Christian, keeping some elements of the Roman belief. Constantine's personal conversion led to the conversion of the Roman Empire and the establishment of Christianity across the Roman world. It's a great what-if moment of history, that if a few battles had had different outcomes, Christianity might have persisted simply as an annoying cult that may eventually have died out because of the persecutions of the Romans. Constantine's career essentially started in York, and if the soldiers there hadn't believed in him, the whole world would have been different. I can't help but think Constantine might look at the start of his imperial career in Britannia as of the way a great rock star thinks about the small, insignificant and, in all honesty, unpleasant bar where their own career began. At best, it's an interesting part of the story of their rise to greatness. The Decline The rest of the story of Roman Britain is one of war, defeat and eventual abandonment. We're now very much in the decline stage of the Roman Empire and, unsurprisingly, the insignificant island slips further and further down each emperor's list of priorities. Even the eventual split of the empire into definitive east and west parts, which could perhaps have led to each area of the empire getting more attention, didn't help. As the empire lurched from disaster to disaster, always just managing to stay on the right side of defeat and destruction, the barbarians now saw the empire as a very tempting target. Even in its decline, its wealth was staggering. The bureaucracy that ran the empire drummed up huge revenues. While this, of course, was very good for the empire, it also drew unwelcome attention. It's similar to Roman roads. Roads which allowed quick movement of armies and communication, which had allowed the empire to grow and then maintain its empire. But when it struggled to fend its borders, the barbarians could use those roads just as well. As this podcast is going out through the History of England podcast, I thought it apt to mention that it reminded me of the situation England found itself in with the Vikings. Its very wealth made it a target to its enemies, and its efficient system of raising money then became the way they paid the Vikings. While the Romans were much less keen on buying anyone off, and even at this stage were more than willing to fight anyone who challenged them, it's an interesting parallel. In what seems to be a rare example of coordination of various different barbarian groups, Britannia was faced with a massive invasion in 367, what is known as the Barbarian Conspiracy. Various barbarian groups across Britannia and Germany poured into the country and overwhelmed the defences. 
these groups had been raiding Roman territory for some time and were becoming more of a problem. But an attack on this scale, by different barbarian tribes who seemed to be acting with a common purpose, was very new indeed. For a time, Britannia essentially fell into anarchy, with many soldiers deserting, and it took the arrival of a commander named Theodosius to restore order. Theodosius was a talented and respected military leader, and father to the similarly talented emperor Theodosius. Theodosius Sr. defeated the barbarians, allowed deserters back into the army without punishment, re-established order, and introduced a raft of measures to ensure the safety of Britannia. Britannia effectively fell from Roman rule in the reign of the Emperor Honorius, a wholly incompetent emperor, completely unfit for the challenges that lay ahead. Honorius fell under the control of various German barbarian generals who acted as the power behind the throne and dictated policy. Desperate for soldiers, the Western Empire was glad of the influx of German barbarians to bolster their legions. Britannia is famous in Roman history, especially in this period, in the number of usurping generals pronounced emperor or attempts at succession from the empire, though many rose up only to be murdered by the same soldiers a little while later. This is surely a symptom of the decline of the empire. Such action was rare in times of strong central leadership, but weak emperors who struggled to pay their soldiers invited usurpers. The last of these Roman generals in Britannia was Constantine III, elevated to emperor by his soldiers in the face of growing problems and an inability of Honorius to do anything about them in 407. Constantine III proved himself an excellent general and leader and set himself up in Gaul, fighting the barbarians invading the empire and slowly gaining control over Britannia, Gaul and Hispania. And eventually he was recognised by the emperor Honorius as co-emperor. Naturally, Honorius wasn't too thrilled at having another power usurping general, but Constantine III brought victories and that was something he sorely needed and he certainly couldn't spare the resources to go and fight him as well. Sadly, Constantine III was no Constantine the Great, and it was only a matter of time before he was defeated and killed. Looking at Rome in this period, it certainly looks like it's destined to fall. There are too many weak emperors, too many barbarians, too many generals ignoring the good of the empire and merely trying to enrich themselves. It seems that money from Rome stopped being sent to Britannia at the beginning of the 5th century and this was a probable reason for the number of men elevated to emperor. Why should the soldiers fight for an emperor who won't even pay them? In 410, there is that infamous letter from Honorius to the people of Britannia telling them to fend for themselves, because virtually all the soldiers had already left the island, drawn away by Constantine III and the need for them elsewhere. It seems an odd end to empire in Britain. It seems often that it is the people themselves who throw out their imperial overlords rather than seeing them appealing for help as the Britons did. But even the barbarians who were attacking the empire wanted a place within it. Even at this late stage, where the sack of Rome is not far off, people were still clamouring to gain entry to the empire. Without the legions to defend them, the people of Britannia were left at the mercy of the invading barbarians. Eventually the Angles and the Saxons would become dominant and found the basis of England. 
then the Vikings came, then the Normans, and a long road that led to the formation of the British Empire, an empire that boasted possessions in Africa and the Middle East that had once been core provinces of the Roman Empire. Victorians spoke of the inherent superiority of the British, the mighty strength of their empire, and that these were evidence of divine support for everything they did, making the world better by conquering parts of it. Perhaps being a rather minor part of the Roman Empire left an inferiority complex amongst the British, so we needed to build our own empire. So, that was a very brief podcast of the Romans of Britain. I'm sure some of you will notice there are parts I've not mentioned, such as other native revolts against the Romans or the division of Britannia into different provinces, but I didn't want to go on forever, and have highlighted what I think to be the most interesting topics. I also hope you don't mind that I've occasionally delved into more general Roman history, but sometimes I thought this necessary to give you context. Overall, I hope I've managed to interest some of you in the ancient world, and thank you for listening. So that, ladies and gentlemen, was Richard Norton, and thank you very much to Richard Norton for putting that together. And meanwhile, from me, David Crowther, thanks very much for listening, everybody. Good luck, and have a great week. (laughs) 